0: well hello and welcome back to going rounds the official podcast of gusto a matter company i'm Jeanette harris Quartz, podcast producer at gusto and host of this podcast today we're giving you the second part of our very special series of going rounds with jay aconzo For those unfamiliar with Going Rounds With, it features people outside of Gusto who we admire and who inspire us to continue championing great work on behalf of our clients. And for this series of episodes, we had the pleasure of inviting Jay to our studio office in Newburyport for an in-person chat with senior producer Gabe Gerzon. Let's get back into the conversation, shall we?
1: I wanted to go back to... um show premises in that show development phase again because one thing um we come up against as a as an agency during that phase is again we talked about a little but that that really strong urge for brands to i need to appeal to everybody to every conceivable customer and I, the, I get a strong sense of anxiety and fear about niching far enough down that you can help or get to a unique premise right so how do you conceptualize or explain like how it's a win to niche down as far as you can, and not a weakness or a a risk.
2: Specific and defensible. What idea would it be advantageous for us to own outright in the market? Now, this does require eating some humble pie, because if you run a marketing SaaS company that's supposed to help marketers, it's an all-in-one marketing tool, you're not going to own the phrase content marketing. You're not going to own modern marketing. You're not going to own Marketing in Calgary among SMBs. Like the, it's really difficult to just go topic, 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 and just add adjectives and say, we own that now. It's Possible. There's maybe some things remaining, but it's a very thin moat that others can step over. Being first is a thin moat. Being, even being largest, uh, being oldest. So what I want to know is, what if we owned an idea in the minds of our audience? So when they thought this, they thought us. Mm-hmm. So back to the lesson, the example... When you're thinking about practicing, when you're thinking about training, when you're thinking about trying to, you know, work something out in your process, you're thinking about lessonly even before you buy because it's a lot easier to get people to run the last mile with you and buy if you've run the whole damn race with them. Like marketing is just two things. It's earning trust, sparking action. That's the job. And people get in trouble when they forget about the trust part and they're just trying to turn the screws faster because they have an internal agenda that the audience does not care about. And they keep asking for actions from people before they're ready. That's when you feel spammy. It's too soon. It's too pushy. It doesn't align with my experience of you. You know, there's a VC firm currently emailing me because I used to work in VC a few years ago and they're trying to like promote a sense of community locally. Well, they're just pushing their brand on me. I haven't heard from them in years and years. It feels spammy. But to someone else who's been around, who is also on that email list, who didn't move away temporarily as I did or stayed in VC, They might welcome that same exact email, right? Right. It's not necessarily what or how you're saying it. It's when. They're too, I'm too early in the, I need to regain trust with this firm or get reacquainted, right? So earn trust, spark action. So what idea would it be advantageous for us to own outright in the market? Let's talk about how we do that. And you can like model this out because it's not enough to just say, let's appeal to everybody, but just like hot ones where they ask celebrities to eat spicy chicken wings we sell marketing software, we're going to ask marketers and CMOs and journalists that cover marketing to eat spicy wings. Why? What does that help you own? It might make a relevant show more enjoyable, but those are table stakes. Like being relevant, table stakes. No one looks at things that are irrelevant. Being enjoyable. Also now table stakes. Because if I don't like this experience, I have infinity examples that are better. Right. So relevancy, enjoyability, being entertaining, these are table stakes. You wanna be impactful. You wanna feel personal. So okay, we're not just gonna interview marketing executives. We're not just gonna interview marketing executives with wings, with the spicy wings gimmick, because we're relevant and enjoyable. To be impactful, what if it affected the content? Okay, all right, here it is, here it is, ready? Ready, here's the pitch. We're gonna interview marketing executives. Eh, a lot of shows do that, but with the wings, eh, it doesn't really like help the audience necessarily, even though it's more enjoyable. But every question gets harder as every wing gets spicier. Now we're, now we're cooking, right? right? Okay, here's the problem. Where are you in this mess of content? I don't see a darn thing that is specific to your vision as a leader in this space with a prescription for where this is all going or a problem you're trying to solve for me. You're too hollow. You're too removed. Someone else could do that same show. And if I took off the names, how would I know it's you? So let's get personal. That's the top of this little pyramid. Relevant, enjoyable, impactful, Personal. Get there, because if you're among the few things in someone's life that feel personal and irreplaceable, you're among their favorites. We want to be their favorite show. Okay, so it's not just eating spicy wings while we talk to executives and each question gets harder. Why do we want to talk to executives? Why do we want to have this conversation? What do we believe? Well, I'm frustrated by the fact, and I love starting with frustration to finalize your premise, I'm frustrated by the fact that marketers today are burning out all over the place. We're slicing the pie of finite resources in time infinite more ways. It's getting worse, not better. And nobody wants to speak up about this because they're afraid of seeming weak or getting fired. I will. I'll be a leader. I'll raise my hand. I will say as a brand, as a podcaster, whomever, I won't stand for this anymore because we keep learning new things in marketing and you know what we're not learning is how to adapt. But in modern marketing, It is equal parts learning marketing and learning or having systems to adapt. Both of those things are the job. And we'd agree on that, but we would never really invest or haven't invested any time or awareness in the second. And we have to. We have to learn how to evolve. We have to learn how to have sustainable systems. That's my frustration. That's my belief and my personal vision for where we're going. We're going to be adaptable marketers. Okay, so on this podcast, we're going to interview marketing executives. We're relevant. Asking them to eat spicy chicken wings. We're enjoyable. While each question gets harder and harder, we're impactful. And the reason we're doing this is because you as a marketer are facing increasing pressures all the time. So to reflect that, we're going to increase the pressure on our guests as we talk to them. We're personal. There's a reason for this approach. So what can you own outright in the market? Well, you might pitch this show as like, it's the modern marketing podcast. Because the only thing top brands have in common is how they adapt. So we are going to only narrowly focus on adaptation skills and systems and approaches and moments with our guests. We're going to own the idea that the most successful marketers are the most adaptable. Is that an idea that's advantageous for us to own outright in the market? If not, I'll go back to the drawing board. Right. But what I don't want to do is say, yes, but also these 17 other ideas are advantageous to own. Right? Now we're just going to water it down. It's like taking the hot wings and adding a bunch of milk into the hot sauce. It's, uh, it's not good enough. It's not, <laughs> yeah. not really sp- spicy and mem- memorable enough. So, <laughs> I like how you broke that down.
1: Um, and I think a lot of what you've described and we've talked about so far makes, I, I hope it makes sense to the audience and they're nodding along, but it's not easy either, right? Like it takes real effort and creativity and staring at a blank word doc and writing and deleting and writing and deleting and how, um, and beyond that, like even if you do arrive at a great premise and you think you got it all figured out as far as a a show development scheme, um, it's the commitment that comes into play with long form content too, whether that's writing a book as you've done or keeping up with a a weekly podcast. right? Right. 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 And, uh, I think that again, to like speak from our seat, that's, another gap um, in the process for brands is Mm -hmm. there's the idealistic vision of like, oh, won't that be so cool when we have a successful podcast? But then it's like, when it comes time to show up every week to do the hard work of creating the podcast and uh, being in the digital room to record it week over week, um, it's really tough to keep that same energy and excitement up and not kick the can down the road. So I'm curious, what are your sort of like, words of words of encouragement is the wrong phrase, but just, uh, setting the, the stage for what it's going to take to sustainably produce a show that is going to reach those, those, you know, impactful and personal stages you just talked about for your audience.
2: I mentioned offhand briefly that I worked in VC. I was the, the VP of content community at a seed stage fund, uh, here in Boston, called next View next View ventures, yep. um, best job I ever had. And I remember Rob Go, one of the partners, we were talking about, you know, the entrepreneurship journey is very popularized as hard and difficult, et cetera. And there are things you can do to try and mitigate the risk and all these things. But ultimately, you know, doing meaningful things is hard. He said to me, the hard is what makes it worthy. Yeah. I don't understand, you know, you get on shows like this, you go to conferences and get questions from an audience. When it's broadcasty or performative, people go, but this is hard. How do you make it easy? But when you're in the room and you're staring at your colleagues, ideally in person, that's my vibe, but uh, we can go with more Zoom. I know I'm a little burnt out on that, but yeah, sure. <laughs> you're, staring at, you're, you're staring at the actual eyes or that little blue dot above your That's screen. why we're doing this in person. Yeah, y'all. <laughs> I love it. I love it so much, but I'm an extreme extrovert. Yeah. So my wife is like, no, I'll stay home. <laughs> um, in that room, in the one-to-one contextual personal I'm looking around the table at people I work with anyway, and no one is going, but this will be hard, right? And I am not someone who goes, suck it up, tough it out, right? you know, rub some dirt on it. No. My wife is a psychologist. I embrace therapy. I've been in therapy. Like, we should be taking care of ourselves mentally and emotionally. Yep. And that is a terrible reaction to something feeling hard. Suck it up. Push through. Push through. Up. Yeah. yeah, in life or in work. But at the end of the day... This is one of those boogeymen that marketers constantly deal with. There are two. The boogeyman of, but this is hard, and the boogeyman of, but my boss. <laughs> so the but my boss thing came into play when I was speaking quite a bit, which people would come up after a speech and go, "Jay, I love what you're saying about creativity. I'd be very thankful for that. And, they, and then I knew it was coming. But my boss. But my boss. Would never. Go. Some version of that. And I used to think I needed a clever heuristic. Like I, I went down this rabbit hole of like, how do you rearrange a pitch? I even kind of gave you a version of it. Yeah. And I wrote about like the green smoothie problem is this metaphor that I wrote about. And I'm like, okay, now go to the URL and now you have it. Like I went out of my way to try and provide people with a framework for how to better pitch. And I thought to myself, like, I'm making an assumption here, which is probably really dangerous. I'm giving them a place to hide because the assumption I'm making is, and the the place to hide would be my writing. The assumption I'm making is that they've actually sat down with their real boss or real client or real stakeholder and peer and talked it out. And that's not an imaginary conversation. And it's not not an imaginary conversation. And it's not built on assumptions and hallway or inbox, you know, cursory language. And I just started asking people after a while, that's really interesting. And they tell me more about what you want to do. They lay it all out to me. Really interesting. Have you mentioned this to your boss yet? And almost to an individual, the answer was no. And I just wonder what if, like, what, what, if we did mention it? We might not get, what we want, we might not get everything, but we might start the conversation. Um, and the, you know, so the, these, we have these boogeyman in marketing of like, but the pace of change is rapid and more rapid than ever. I started marketing in 2008. That was a refrain back then. Like, the, the, uh, but there's more content and noise than ever before. I'm pretty sure the person who recognized that the printing press was going to be a thing, Went to the town square. Hear ye, hear ye. We have too much content. Like these problems are built in our brains, which makes them no less real. But it does help if we confront them. I mean, just like with therapy, exposure therapy works. Confronting them, talking to your boss, realizing they're not such a jerk, right? In most cases, (laughs) I don't want to say like, oh, no boss is a jerk. No, 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 no. Or now they understand my side of it. I thought they were a jerk, but I helped them understand. I at least laid it out to them. There's a lack of sort of honesty, vulnerability, right. and open sharing. That when you're already on the path, when you're already making, say, a show, you look around the table and no one's going, "But it's hard." Right, yeah. So it's it's one of these marketing boogeymen that we just have to recognize might not be real. Um, and so when you think back, I mean, you're firmly in the, uh, you know,
1: the the heart of your career here. But why do you think you've dedicated your career to helping? brands and the people at them tell better workplace stories. What, what sort of about this path has resonated with you year over year? What's so gratifying?
2: There's that phrase, misery loves company, but I think there's a, an inverse, not an inverse, but a, a positive version of that, mm-hmm. which is I think joy does too, right? I think when you love something, you want to share it with other people. And uh, I got into marketing after wanting to be a sports journalist, and I love to write. I love stories. I love the moments in the quiet I mentioned URR is my made-up metric. I have another one, CPP. CPP is cackles per piece. I'm alone. I'm editing my show, and the music snaps into place at the voice, In the voice, they overlap perfectly, and it's like a dramatic moment or an inspiring moment, and I'm alone, and it happens, and I listen to it, and I'm like, ha-ha, yes, like cackling to myself about the writing, about the edit, about the working on the slides for the speech, the rehearsal of the spe- The craft is full of so much joy for me, and the emotion I feel matters greatly to my life. And then I put it out in the world as a gift, and I can sometimes see that reflected back to me, and that's amazing. And when I walk into marketing, I'm thinking about drinking the water, and all I see are people talking about the cup, right? It's content. It's this hollow container. Should it be long or short? Mm. What is the ideal length of a podcast? I, what are you putting inside of it, right? Talk, talk to me about the stuff that, because that's what others want, is they want what's in it. People want short form today. They want snackable content. Yeah, but only if it's mediocre because they, they will realize very quickly that this is mediocre. And so what they're really doing is they're not really consuming you. They're trying you out, but it's so short that by the end of your thing, they realize it's mediocre. If it was long form, they would have realized about the same time too. We don't have a, a, a short attention span. We have a low tolerance for mediocrity, right? right? And I think it's because we're kind of squeezing everything to fit this shape and form that's just the same. It's just gray. It's just... Press a button and out comes content. Here's chat GPT. It's create a LinkedIn post with line by line, big breaks in between about some meaningless moment. If it was meaningful to you, I'm not seeing it. It's just you trying to game an algorithm and grab attention, Yeah. right? Because the social network behind it, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, anywhere, they're treating you, you're a free provider of ad inventory. We're getting good at creating ad inventory for ad networks. They call themselves social networks. They are ad networks. That is not what I got into the workplace to do. Same in marketing. I didn't want to game a system. I didn't want to, you know, there was a moment in my career at Google where somebody uh, showed me a YouTube video and I wanted to show it to other people because I was so excited about the video. And when I hit play, I saw a pre-roll ad from my coworker on the ad sales team at Google at the time from his client. And I went to my, I saw the ad. I was like, oh, damn it, Eric. Because like Eric had sold it. Like no one could have known that but me because yeah, yeah, I knew yeah. this was Eric's client and right. now he's interrupting the... the the experience I wanted to share with my friends, right? And I felt frustrated. And then I realized, oh, I have the same job that Eric has. Whoops. <laughs> and I realized, like, I don't want to make people like stuff. I want to make stuff people like. And so all of that joy, all that meaning and emotion bottled up in the process before publishing and the response afterwards. I get into marketing and I just see people missing the point. Yeah, It's just not present. And it's bad for the people, the audience, the creator of the work, et cetera. But it's also bad for business. It's this. Endless race, digging holes in dry sand where nothing is memorable. Nothing is. We're getting so obsessed with being visible. That's not the job. The job is to be memorable. It's not about reach. It's about resonance. So I get frustrated by this. I get worked up because personally, I have so much joy, meaning, emotion, experience, learning in this process. And then I see people bastardizing it, ignoring it, trying to skip through it, thinking it's just fluff. I'm sorry. I'm not going to stand for that. So I'm very privileged as a person. You know, I was born white, straight, cisgendered, male, great parents, upper middle class of Connecticut. The door was ajar for me when I was born, and my hard work is shouldering through that. And I feel a responsibility to take those things I was given and the things I worked hard to earn and try and disseminate that. Um, and I don't know if that makes me de- – I'll rephrase. It does make me delusional to think that I can make a dent in that problem, but it's been a problem I've been focused on since, I don't know, 2008. And it just feels like it's getting more urgent as people try to remove the humanity behind our work.
1: Haven't you said something like you want to be the Anthony Bourdain of brand (laughs) brand content?
2: (laughs) That's your grandest delusion. That is actually my grandest (laughs) delusion. Yeah. I mean, his stories did all of that for me. Yeah. Way more succinctly (laughs) and (laughs) way more artfully.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I miss him. Uh, So to ask you the industry trends question, um, you've mentioned adaptability and and chat GPT. Like, what do you think? people in our position, marketers for themselves or or for brands, um, are going to want to be cognizant of or stay ahead of in the coming, call
2: it two years? I think the most important thing you could be doing is telling more personal stories. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean telling my story, like the bio, the backstory. I'm interviewing with the two Bobs. If you haven't seen Office Space, I just dated myself, but (laughs) go watch the movie Office Space. I'm not like, Because that's the question you get is, okay, I want to tell more personal stories. I want to get better at telling my story. No, you tell lots of stories. And you pull them from your personal perspective on the world, a memory, a moment, etc. People go, yeah, but it's actually not about me. Or I don't think others care about me. And I'm saying the story is not about you. You're right. You're the protagonist. But you're a stand-in. The story is about them, their pain, their emotions, what they care about. It's an allegory. Or a metaphor, it's not documentary. It's not a case study. And a great example is we have a a member inside. I've run a membership group called The Creator Kitchen. You mentioned Bourdain, probably inspired by (laughs) Kitchen Confidential and all his work. The Creator Kitchen is for a more experienced type of creator who is quality obsessed, who, when I stand on a stage or on a website and I say, This is about creative growth, they don't scoff or they don't look kind of confused or they don't need me to say, we can 10X your audience in 10 days. Oh, by the way, it's through creative growth. They don't need that. They just hear creative growth, quality, craft. They go, hell yes. I'm on board. I'm on board, right? So that's who it's for. There's a guy in the group named Brian, Brian Piper. He's in higher ed. He runs a content strategy team. gives a lot of talks on UX and data and things like that. He's co-authored a book, Epic Content Marketing, with Joe Polizzi. Um, Brian is very experienced, very discerning creator. So he's in the group. And even he, at his status and his experience level, He's talking to me and my co-founder, Melanie Diesel, a lot about, well, I love skydiving and I've always wanted to, in my writing and in my speaking, to marketers talk more about skydiving. But why would they care about me? And I'm saying like, they care about themselves. You need to make the story about them. They see themselves reflected in it. So how do you do that? Well, the most obvious metaphor is when you're talking about taking risks, talk about skydiving. I'm a big skydiver. You know what you have to do to skydive? Make the leap. It's kind of obvious, though. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a little trite, right? We can go further. What is something that you experienced a moment or something that you do a lot where only if I experienced it like you did would I know that about that thing? Hmm. Brian, thanks for a little while. We start talking about how well in skydiving. I don't know if people know this. There's a moment where, like, let's say you have an instructor on your back. You make the leap. Then they tap you. And you open your arms and legs up, right? And that makes for a better fall. And then eventually you'll pull the ripcord and and float down. So it's like, okay, Brian, this is genius. Like most people observing your love of skydiving, they wouldn't know that. They would know about the leap thing. That's kind of a trite way to use your personal storytelling. But what if you got on a stage and said, you know, most people see this about skydiving, but if you did it like I do, if you know it like I do, what you'd experience is there's a, a really important moment following the leap where you have to open your arms and legs. And this is what that does for the experience and yada, yada, yada. So that's the thing about taking risks. It's not enough to make the leap. You have to open yourself up to what will come afterwards. Because if you don't, you're just clinging to what came before. You're too closed off and it's going to hurt your results and your well-being. So it's not enough to make the leap. You have to open yourself up to what happens once you do. That is a powerful way to tell a personal story, my friend. Like that is how we do it. That's his creative fingerprints all over the work. No LLM, no generative AI is trained on that perspective or those moments. And he could turn it from the metaphor I gave you to a longer story. He could put you there. That moves from a metaphor to an allegory because a metaphor is a comparison and allegory is a story. So the metaphor is a comparison to understand a lesson. An allegory is the journey to the lesson. So he could say, I just passed my 500th jump but I was thinking the other day about jump number five. Let me take you there. He describes it. He raises your anticipation, raises the stakes. Then he gets to the moment. Then he gets to the lesson, right? Now tell me what app can do that. That's it. So you have a lot of pithy,
1: evocative taglines. And one of many that I love that I think you already said today is marketing is about making things people want, not making people want things. I think that resonates with my generation of marketers who love the creative opportunities that brand marketing affords, but depending on who they work for, can feel conflicted about contributing their talents to companies who maybe don't share their strongly held values and aren't practicing you know, brand affinity or brand resonance. So what's your career advice for how marketers can maintain and nurture a strong sense of integrity in their journey?
2: There was an interview I listened to several years ago with the c- comedian and actor uh, Keegan-Michael Key, and he was talking about when a studio executive would sort of lean on him as a creative or collaborators were acting poorly and out of line with his values or, you know, any of the scenarios that sound like a good comparison to what somebody in-house at a, a business might deal with or a freelancer with a client, there's a lot of that that goes on in Hollywood, right? It's We're not immune. We're not as special as you might think. There's a lot of that with these creatives that we hold up on a pedestal. And he was saying early in his career, oftentimes it was either – kowtowing to what they wanted or the other extreme of like being surly and angry and either quitting or just doing the work but being really begrudging about it and that you know either way weighed on him and he said as he got a little bit older and of course this comes with a little more gravitas that he has but even still I don't think you need to be famous to do this he used the phrase I'll never forget which is once in a while you don't want to come in guns blazing you just want to show your holster Mm. and what he meant was You want to be able to prove your worth and show someone what you got, but you don't have to be so in their face about it or so angry about it or so angsty about it. So an example in the creative world, and there's several we could probably talk about. One is, do you have a practice outside your day job? Can you showcase what you're actually able to do when no one is telling you you can't? Because number one, you're going to be better for it across your career. I mean, you look at my LinkedIn, that is 5% of my experience (laughs) because most of mine is built on side projects. That could be 10 minutes a week. That could be two hours a week. But it's something you control. You publish it on a cadence because it's Friday and on Fridays we ship. That's the reason you're shipping. It's not because you're amazing that day. It's because it's Friday or whatever your day is. And it's not about any kind of measurable outcome other than your own improvement, satisfaction, exploration, curiosity. It will transform you. Every creative type of person needs a practice. I am sold on this. If you don't have one of those, don't go in guns and blazing, don't go in crazy, don't go in mad, go create a practice, right? Because maybe in your head, you're better than you are. Like, that's how I feel about my show. Early on, I was like, this show's amazing. Why doesn't it have all this attention? Because actually, it wasn't that good. Um, Yeah, it's hard to admit. But you listen back 200 episodes ago for Unthinkable, the episode that, you know, some people point to is is great. I'm like, no, I see how now I think I'm a lot better. And in 200 more, I'm going to be a lot better than I am now because I have a practice. So first, you need to practice. No one can tell you not to. It's the internet. Don't wait. But secondly... We've all kind of hit the life lottery. Like I'm talking knowledge workers. I'm talking to people that I think for the most part, it's fair for me to say they're not working simply to put food on the table. Pick a better boss. As a creator, I talk to other creators who hate a big audience that they've built for themselves. It's insane. You have like 100,000 followers on that or, you know, 50,000 subscribers and you don't like your audience. Why? Because they're doing what works in some generic fashion Mm. that someone told them will grow audience and it worked, but they didn't like who came their way. It's the same when you work in-house. Like we have to get better at aligning our values to the actual work.
1: Mm.
2: Like what are we doing if not that? So I don't love saying this, but sometimes if you put your best foot forward, if you've created on the side, if you found little pockets within the sanctioned work to do something just for you, the way you open that felt very you. And you start to pick up a few qualitative responses from the side project, from the day job that go, wow, that was amazing. And you're making the case internally. And you're not treating a boss or a stakeholder like a boogeyman. You're sitting down and having the conversation. If you've done all of those things, at some point, the solution is just leave. Now, I say just. I hate that word. right? It's hard. But as we said before on this conversation, the hard thing is what makes it worthy. And, and, and I, I know it's so pithy to say, but like I am profoundly driven by my own mortality because I am so acutely aware of how many things I want to create and how much I want to try different mediums, different size, scope, shape things. And if something is holding me back on doing that, the reason I'm stressed about it is because I know I'm going to die. <laughs> I only have so much I can create. So put it on a mug, put it on a poster. I know it's getting really pithy here, but at the end of the day, show people what you have. Show people what you can do. And if they still don't want it and you're like, but that's what I can do, go find someone else who appreciates it. The absolute best summary of this that I've ever heard, I've heard multiple comedians say this. The job of a comedian is not to convince people you're funny and it's not to make people laugh. It's to find people who think you're funny.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a mentality shift right there. You
2: pick your audience, you pick your future.
1: I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. So where do you source your inspiration? I think everyone should go sign up for Jay's weekly newsletter, but what newsletters do you read, if any, that you're psyched when they land in your inbox or what podcast, you know, pick your medium?
2: Yeah. Uh, I go outside the echo chamber with a couple exceptions. So the question that you could have asked me, which causes, it used to cause me to break out in cold sweats. Now I kind of relish it. What is a marketing book you'd recommend? Um, Mm. none marketing books. Not that they're (laughs) not good. No, there's a lot of good marketing books. And I've even like written one that some might couch in that category. It's just that I, I read stories from chefs. You know, I, I love podcasts from comedians or about science. Like I'm going way outside the echo chamber because I can't turn off the part of my brain that is looking at the meta level that is trying to peer into the code of the matrix. You know, I, like I, you've mentioned Bourdain to me today When I started my podcast, a few episodes in, it just felt not that repeatable and not like the best of what I could put forward. So I sat with a notebook, I watched a bunch of Bourdain's episodes and I tried to document like what he was doing Mm -hmm. moment to moment and like break it out into five or 10 minute blocks of the show. And I literally extracted what I felt and he would probably never have admitted was a rundown for the episodes, right? Right now, he could have said, "No, we don't do it that way." But that's what I saw. That's what I took from it, and that's
1: what's important. And
2: that's what's important, right? And so I, I'm very much outside the echo chamber. Um, within the echo chamber, I have to give a plug to my friend Margot Aaron. She writes a newsletter at thatseemsimportant.com, which is about marketing, yes, but almost in like the Seth Godin sense. Like I think she's from that school, and you know has mentioned him several times to me. Like she talks about the humanity behind it. You know, she wrote one of the most powerful paragraphs about AI I've ever read, which was the one thing AI can't give me is the one thing I want from you, which is your personal perspective and your lived experience. And then she rattles off a bunch of questions from her own life. You know, like, why do you like blue M&Ms for some weird reason? Uh, Tell me about the time that celebrity fell on you and kissed you. What was that phrase grandma Oz used to tell you? Why did you read that turtle story to your sister when you were young? Like all these things that seem irrelevant to our work that you can't deny when you show up to do it, when you show up to create, that goes with you. Like We all bring with us a messy bag of humanity whenever we create. And the difference is, and I think this is probably the most important thing that someone like Margot understands, I'm trying to understand, I'm trying to help people do with the Creator Kitchen, there is a bright line emerging among all creators today. On the one side, you have people who think the job is to create content. And on the other, you have people who know the job is to create connection. That's what the content is for. If you think the job is to create content, you get super excited about brands that say, 10X your content. 10x the speed. On the other side, you get excited about somebody who says, oh my gosh, I felt seen by your work. One person. Because you know that's the job. It's hard emotional labor. So I am looking in my consumption for people who know that. And mostly they're not in the business world. Mostly they're not. In marketing, mostly they're artists, right? There's a lot of exceptions. And what I'm trying to do is like ring the bell that only those exceptions here in my show, in my newsletter, in my books, in my membership, so that they come out of the woodwork and go, great, we're here in a density now. Let's fight back. Let's thumb the scales in favor of craft, creativity, and quality in the face of just this onslaught of sameness. Awesome. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more
1: uh, about Creator Kitchen. Can you describe that program and who it's uh, best served for?
2: Yeah. So we have uh, a membership, which the best analogy I can use is when you're a basketball player, you don't go and generically get better at basketball. You focus on one strength at a time, like dribbling or shooting or your conditioning, and then you exercise or emphasize that back in the, the game as you do other things, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're creative, there's a million things you could work on at all times, and there's a million strengths you could possibly master. And what we've built is a membership, which is like an open kitchen, creator kitchen, that if you're going to do your work, do it here and emphasize this one strength that we're all talking about and all thinking about for seven weeks at a time. So by the end of the year, you master six or seven core foundational strengths. And the summary is the same. You're going to build momentum in your career and you're going to create work only you can create. So whether you're like, uh, AI, I'm a little worried, we want to make you irreplaceable. Or you're like, you know, I've been shipping for a while. Well, we want you to ship things that feel more like you stepping into your full power. People talk about volume. We talk about power. People talk about growing the audience. We talk about your creative growth, which, oh, by the way, grows the audience really well. Um, so the creative kit, Creator Kitchen is for experienced creators who have a desire to ship quality things. And when I say the word quality, they don't go, what does it even mean? they go, hell yeah, brother, quality, all the way. (laughs) Hell yeah, brother. Well, thanks for hopping on (laughs) the the pod today. certainly appreciate you coming up. Thank you. uh, I think
1: we all learned a lot. So thanks for coming on, Jay. Thanks. This is so much fun. Great.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Going Rounds. I hope you feel like you've learned a little bit more about the type of writer, producer, designer, creative that you want to be in this world, thanks to the wise words of Jay. And if you want to learn more about Jay, please visit his website tagged in the show notes. And if you want to talk to us, don't be a stranger. Email us at hello at letsgusto.com. We can't wait to bring you more perspectives from our staff and other creatives that inspire us. Until then, bye.
2: Boom. (laughs) Awesome. And we're out. Cut.